Hi everyone, my name is Miles Ferret and I serve as the Assistant Director for Leadership in the Center for Student Engagement at George Washington University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. My guests today are Dr. John Dugan and Anna Rossetti. Dr. John Dugan is a professor in the Higher Education Program at Loyola University Chicago. John also serves as the Principal Investigator for the Multi-Institutional Study of Leadership and relevant to our discussion today, John is the author of the recently released book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. Anna Rossetti is the Assistant Dean at Stewart School of Business at the Illinois Institute of Technology. She's an adjunct faculty member at Loyola University Chicago and currently serves as the incoming co-chair of the Women in Student Affairs Knowledge Community. Anna completed her undergraduate work at, yay, George Washington University <laughs> and her master's degree at Loyola University Chicago. Welcome, Anna and John. Hello. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yeah. So this is the second part of our of our series on John's new book, Leadership Theory, Cultivating Critical Perspectives. And in this episode, we're going to discuss curricular applications of the book. But before we transition to that, we're going to get to know Anna a little better as a person and a professional. So this section is called Rapid Fire. So Anna, are you ready for some hard-hitting questions? I guess we'll <laughs> see about that. All right. So I understand you had a non-traditional pet as a child. Could you share about that figure in your life? Yes. Well, um, in the Llanos of Venezuela, sometimes uh, giant anteater moms have run-ins with jaguars. And what happens sometimes is that uh, there are orphan uh, baby anteaters that unfortunately find themselves without a home. So, um, a veterinarian friend of my dad's uh, in Venezuela, we were living there at the time, um, found my dad and said, you know, you're a really good caretaker of animals. Would you like to take this baby giant anteater? And my dad said, of course, there's plenty of room on our sprawling ranch. So I ended up with a <laughs> baby giant anteater, which they grow to be 10, 12 feet from nose to tail. They're enormous. Wow. Of course, at the time, it was a few feet long. I remember putting, you know, it running around in our little toy stroller and feeding it with a baby bottle and all that stuff. And it was a lot of Are fun. Are they affectionate? So, um, they're extremely playful okay. and like very um, precocious. So okay. I remember we had farm ranch dogs and she would like whack the dogs with her tail and the dog would like get all wild and then she would throw herself on the ground and like pretend to be dramatically, you know, you know, in distress. I mean, she was totally playing the dogs like left and right. She was very smart. So she ended up, uh, you know, she, she didn't live in the house, you know, she they're nocturnal, so she would go out at night and have her activity. And over time, over the years, she was able to successfully go off into the wild. And mm. we kind of saw her at one point. She had a little baby on her back. So oh it was a gosh. successful release into nature oh my story. Gosh. So, so pet is describing it a little bit loosely, but that's that was my closest thing to a pet. I need pictures of this. That was pretty there. inspirational. I just got a little misty. <laughs> <I know. laughs> a lovely thought. Well, you know, maybe, maybe who knows? giant auntie on your podcast it's <laughs> all i've ever wanted when i pitched it i was like You're welcome. i just need a space to talk about giant anteaters well, so happy to provide here we are uh sana i know that you speak several languages have you ever dreamed in another language uh i actually find that i both dream and think uh in different languages depending on the context um as you know uh language and culture, certainly for me, since I learned every language I speak in culture, are inexorably tied to those experiences. So for me, there are certain expressions or experiences that really can't be fully understood without mm -hmm. being understood in that language, um, mm -hmm. idioms and other words and descriptions, and just 
ways of saying things that convey so much more um, when there's that cultural understanding. Um, and so uh, there, there are times when it just slips right into that um, for me. And of course, Spanish being my, my first language is the one that, that happens to uh, with the most, but um, Portuguese and Italian are also examples. Mm. It's great. It's a lot of fun. Okay, great. So Anna, how did you get into student affairs and leadership work? Uh, well, unlike a lot of uh, the student affairs professionals that I know, certainly when you go around the room and do introductions, what was your path, all that stuff, um, I, uh, which may make you a little bit sad <laughs> from GW, but was very disengaged uh, when I was a uh, college student. Um, and part of that was my own um, exploration of my identities. Um, I, uh, you know, wasn't quite sure where my fit was, and I found myself really having to compartmentalize and code switch a lot in order to feel um, included in a lot of groups and you know this has really changed over time um, because now we have much more um, you know awareness and, and, and explore and celebrate um, layers of identity and, and cross-cultural and, and mixed-race issues but um, you know at the time that was you were sort of like you were with your Latinos over here you're with your African Americans over here you're with your international students over there you know it was a little bit more um, compartmentalized so I had a hard time feeling whole in a lot of spaces and that's an experience that you know I'm still mm -hmm. exploring uh, to this day since I have passing privilege as well so adds an interesting layer to that so I was fairly disengaged uh, in student organizations I wasn't an RA or anything like that um, I did work on campus for four years um, and so that was a good experience um, but it was exactly that experience that led me and really felt called into student affairs because I, I really resonated with the experience of students who just didn't feel like they quite fit the mold or mm -hmm. didn't really you know find their place readily um, in, in their college experience and so that's where I have a soft spot for students who are finding their way and trying to figure out how they how they belong and to have that empathetic understanding of that experience is, is something that's really calls to me so kind of a little bit of a different path mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. All right. So, uh, ask this on every podcast, and uh, let me provide a little context. Present company notwithstanding, what is the best book about leadership? It's so unfair. Uh, so I have to protest because uh, this, you know, John's book has been really uh, transformational for me. Um, so I'm gonna kind of go with a classic oldie but a goodie, but with a little bit of a twist, and I'll say why. So, um, so I'm gonna say Bowman and Deal reframing organizations, mm. but here's why, right? So, um, first of all, I have like this dream that I'm gonna take like the tools of deconstruction, reconstruction, and like do something with Bowman and Deal and like add critical perspectives, and it's gonna be amazing. So I've, that's percolating in the back of my mind. But part of the thing that um, you know, just nowadays uh, in our current climate and everything, um, this notion of reframing I think is such a basic, um, important skill, um, and. You know, we we are so polarized often when we're having arguments and discussions with people, and I think sometimes we're really looking at some of the same issues, but from just very positivist, polarized perspectives. And I just I wonder if this notion of reframing and being able to see the same thing but in a different perspective, multiple perspectives, might be a way to start sort of turning the conversation a little bit and building some opportunities to discuss and understand where each other's coming from rather than just I have to agree with you in mm -hmm. order to understand you um, because I think that's a little bit hard of an ask um, in some cases so I'm loving this you know getting back to some of the basics these notions of, of reframing and looking at things from multiple perspectives but I'd love to amplify that using critical perspectives and some of those social justice tools that are now in our lexicon so 
Great. Okay. Yeah. Do it. <laughs> well, so, so what I love is that um, I think all of us with these leadership lenses take a sort of different sort of approach to how we make sense of it, right? So one of the things I've always loved about Anna is that you have such brilliance around organizational thinking. It, you know, Julie Owen has that as well, and I don't, that, that's not in my lexicon. So I'm such a, like a social psychologist sort of approach, and we need people to think about it from these organizational frames and to infuse that there. So I love that well, answer. I, and I love that because I, I'm really a practitioner who dips my toe in the um, scholarly waters here and there, gingerly. Um, and so systems, it's, it's a very big way that I think. So systems and, and organizational issues, um, being a practitioner are really salient to my work. So um, I'd love to be able to operationalize that some more. So. Great. All right, so our next segment is Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So I'm going to provide two true stories from Higher Ed Current Events and one lie, and Anna and John <laughs> will get to work collaboratively to parse out the lie. The theme this week is educational journeys. Okay. Uh-oh. This makes me so nervous. All right. <laughs> I was nervous before you said the thing. Your first option. The students of Flathead Valley Community College in Montana recently had quite the fright and or thrill, depending on your perspective. A grizzly bear wandered from Glacier National Park and somehow became trapped in the atrium of Broussard Student, uh, excuse me, Broussard Center for Nursing and Health Science. No students were hurt, though one, Johnny McIntosh, was quoted in the local newspaper, the Daily Interlake, as saying, I was looking at my phone, heard a roar, looked up, saw a giant bear, and ran so fast my shoes fell off. <laughs> Sounds very... I mean... You know. Okay. All right, so that's your first option. Okay. I'll, you, can, you can editorialize in a moment. All right, uh, option number two. Noted linguist and political thinker Nam Chomsky is co-teaching a course this semester at the University of Arizona. A person named Joe Coughlin decided to take the course. This is unique as Joe is neither a student nor a resident in Arizona. Joe commutes 12 hours each way via bus and train from Bakersfield, California to make the Tuesday-Thursday sections of the course. So that's your second option, educational journeys. And our final one is that Iowa State Senator Mark Chelgren recently created controversy when he proposed no professor be hired at a public Iowa institution if their most recent political affiliation would cause the overall balance of the faculty to exceed 10% more than the other party. Senator Chelgren may have attracted more attention than he wanted with his proposal, as it has since been discovered that his edu educational credentials are falsified. He listed his experience taking a professional development course while working for Sizzler as, as an undergraduate degree on his professional website. He also attended UC Riverside, but did not graduate. So, your three options are <laughs> Grizzly Bear in Montana, going on a journey. Maybe this bear wanted to be a nurse, I don't know. Uh, Joe Coughlin, going to extreme lengths to seem to take a course with Nam Chomsky, or Iowa State Senator Mark Chelgren falsifying his uh, Sizzler experience as an undergraduate diploma. Well, do Sizzlers even still exist? I, in, during my recent trips on interstates, I don't believe I've seen any. Okay. Now, it could have been a while ago. It could have been, right. I mean, I don't know if I'm happy or sad that Sizzler might not still exist. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> huh. Okay, so how are we gonna break this down? Okay, so, there is a level of detail in two of them. Yeah. That is either that is usually a good that giveaway. You think that I'm a, a rabid listener of the NPR, you know, news quiz. Yeah. So I, I should be better at this. I mean, grizzly bears are so topical and timely right now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I feel like that reinforces our education secretary's reason for yes. arming that students. Was exactly what uh, I was thinking. I mean, about he that. wouldn't have had to run away if there 
you know, was other alternatives in the school. So, I mean, <laughs> and grizzly bears are everywhere. I mean, like, they really are. Yes. Um, that can happen. So I'm feeling like that's got to be true, right? Well, I mean, the like... the level of detail definitely was... Um, specific. A lot of specificity there. Yeah. So, um... Well, and if I was in Bakersfield, I would totally go to Arizona. Well, Chomsky, I mean. Right. Well, and it's Bakersfield. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you pass through it to get to LA from Las Vegas or vice versa. Just, uh, just for anyone who's listening, we're recording this live at NASPA Annual and uh, I find this activity to be more difficult in person than it is on the phone. I just want everyone to know that. I'm just, I'm working on my poker face here. I was okay. really trying to read okay. your face. Yeah, and, I'm, uh, I'm trying not to look. I see you trying to be very, uh, very blank. Okay, uh, so okay. Sizzler... Bakersfield or Grizzlies? Oh man. Well, yeah, the level of specificity in the in the Grizzly uh, comment was uh, definitely stood out to me. But I wonder if that was compensating. You know, the level of detail was compensating for the ridiculousness of the whole bear issue. There's got to be some kind of personality type inventory that, like, you and I are going so analytical with this. We're like, let's not even think about what the actual headline is. We're, like, trying to deconstruct what... we should rock, paper, scissors. Right, right. Well, so what do we think is a lie? Oh, um, I... The lie. Um, the commuting 12 hours, do you think? I mean... You think it's pop? It twice a twice a week. Oh, twice a is a lot. That's just a lot. Why um, would Noam Chomsky go to Arizona? <laughs> He's like, let me question the basic foundation. Yeah, of the right, right. <laughs> right. This is what you need computer. to do. You yeah. Can, yeah, interrogate your assumptions. There you go. That's true. That's true. <laughs> the, the, the pro <laughs> tip. Yeah. Thank you, yeah, boss. Yeah, <laughs> Um, okay. Well, I'm gonna go with the grizzly. Yeah, is, is I, my that was my my instinct, but maybe it's you know like primacy. But we're gonna go with that. Yeah. So you ways. think that is the lie? Mm. Oh, we've, <laughs> we have yeah, to find I, the lie. We have to find the lie. Yeah. Yeah, Two yeah. of them are true, folks. <laughs> One is a lie. So grizzly? Grizzly? Yeah. Okay, that's what you're settling on. You feel good about that. Oh god, I of hope so not. because I don't want to give <laughs> any evidence to our new secretary of education that we should be arming children in schools. So All right, folks, congratulations. You are correct. Woo! You got it. All right. The level of specificity didn't seem like it was overcompensating. It yeah. was. You were right, Anna. You really you really got that one. It was overcompensating. <laughs> Just some points, uh, Flathead Valley Community College is the closest college to Glacier National Park. Uh, Johnny McIntosh is not a real person, although I was trying to invert gender expectations there at the nursing school by making that a man. Uh, and the Daily Interlake is the local newspaper for the Kalispiel, I don't know how to say that, area in Montana. Uh, which means that uh, Joe Coughlin is commuting 12 hours each way to get to that uh, Noam Chomsky class. I don't... It doesn't totally make sense to me why he would be going 12 hours each way and not staying overnight on Wednesday if he was going to do it. I don't know his life, but it seems like he's spending 48 hours on a bus slash train a week, so he's got some flexibility. He can do all that reading. Yeah. <clears throat> he could, it yeah. Could, I mean, Chomsky's work is dense. It could take, like, all that time just yeah. to get through one. It's just focused Yeah, That's good. Sure, yeah. Uh, Go Joe. And uh, Senator Mark Chalgren did falsify his credentials. See, that seemed yeah. legitimate. <laughs> Whether it was Sizzler or not, I was like, yeah, that well, happens so, all the time. Who did? Does that mean that Sizzler still exists? Well, he uh, did this in like the late '80s, early '90s. Okay, I'm going to so, Google that later. Yeah, we'll we'll get to the bottom of that. We need to go have another podcast at a Sizzler and record live from a Sizzler if they it do exists. indeed exist. That's a great idea. Yeah. Maybe we could uh, podcast live from one of their leader, one of their professional development yeah. courses that they do. We definitely minimally need to get a sizzling sound effect in the background. <laughs> 
That's what we're talking about. Second year of podcasting, we're going to switch to Sizzler uh, noises. All right. So we're going to transition to the last segment, which is a significant one. It's normally called Six Big Leadership Questions, but we're going deep today, folks. So we're going to call this lots of big leadership questions to be specific. Um, all right, Anna, we uh, have you on the podcast because I know that you were involved in the uh, sort of pilot use of this of this uh, book in a classroom setting. So uh, in what setting did you use this book? Well, it was uh, an amazing opportunity, a really big privilege um, to work from the John's manuscript. I mean, what a, what a rare uh, opportunity. Um, so I was teaching um, an undergraduate course uh, called Foundations of uh, Justice and Ethics and Leadership, uh, which is part of the undergraduate leadership minor that John established at Loyola University of Chicago. Um, and uh, the course uh, was nine students. I had a nice small section, uh, which lent itself beautifully, but honestly, it really, uh, the material lent itself great to, I think, any size group. Um, so the the class uh, was full semester long course. We met once a week, um, and um, the, the the readings um, made up, of course, the foundation uh, of the content we use. In addition to John's uh, first four chapters of his book, we also use North House, some various articles and book chapters, and Johnson's meeting the ethical challenges of leadership um, as well. So that was uh, to provide the. Uh, foundation for ethics uh, and justice, um, but in terms of leadership theory for the entire uh, program. And you've got students that are there from a variety of majors, which I think is important to note. So it's a minor. Um, I had students in political science, journalism, you know, folks that were student athletes, I mean, all kinds of students in the course. So it was a really um, a, a group that had a lot of diversity of thought and, and preparation. So they weren't all necessarily versed in any kind of leadership theory. They all had some exposure to either being leaders on campus on some level or were part of Greek life, um, but they weren't necessarily there to do this work like a graduate student might be. So that was an interesting component of this and actually lent itself really well. Okay, great, great. So John, uh, what role does the facilitator's manual design to play in a part of the curricular learning process? Yeah, thank you for that question. So. Part of when we launched the effort with this book was to recognize that because we are trying to alter the paradigm um, and uh, make a shift happen, that we are, a, in, in essence, changing the way pedagogy plays out, right? And so we were really concerned that you take all this time to write a book that may challenge the foundations of how someone understands something, but do you have the necessary support structures in place? And ultimately, you know, in a curricular setting, there are gatekeepers who will decide what books are adopted or not. And all of this effort is to try and transform leadership education. So if we can't get past the gatekeepers, then the likelihood of changing the system itself is, is very small. And so part of what we decided was, you know, oftentimes there's a teaching guide, but what would, how could we alter even the framework for a teaching, a teacher's edition or a teacher's instructor's guide um, and do a facilitator's guide that would help someone who is a gatekeeper who's about to go and they have a choice to, you know, adopt a new book or not. Um, and that book may change or alter or contradict even the instructor's understanding of leadership. Mm -hmm. So how do I go into a space when I'm like, wow, this is not what I believe at all. So the, I might just choose not to use it. And so what we wanted to do is pull together a series of resources that could be used curricularly or co-curricularly to actually 
not just teach on the chapters, but the themes, um, the major points of deconstruction and reconstruction. So lots of credit go out to Natasha Terman, who is a brilliant um, finishing doc student at Loyola, who co-edited along with um, Dr. Amy Barnes, who is a wonderful colleague at the Ohio State University and on the faculty there, to uh, sort of construct not just one, but a series of activities, all of which could then be used uh, to actually go into the classroom. And the, the whole point is sort of to reduce the burden on the instructor and increase the likelihood that this would be used. Um, all too often, there are you know really wonderful things that have the potential to transform thinking, but they don't get implemented broadly simply because people don't know where to go with them or what to do with it. So that's the kind of concept behind the facilitator's guide that it would give someone an idea to say, okay, this chapter two on um, you know, critical social theory, I don't know anything about that. So how would I go into a room and teach it? Well, here's three different ways that you could actually functionally do that. Mm. Okay, great. So Anna, how did you end up use it, uh, organizing the use of the book in your syllabus? So uh, the syllabus was really a well thought out um, uh, product that I was grateful to receive, um, and it was my job to sort of bring it to life and find a way to really make it uh, an active learning experience in the classroom. Uh, so typically our classes were formatted that there would be an exploration of um, the reading, uh, and it was organized pretty much by, uh, by theory, so there were different um, groupings and clusters of theories that we explored throughout the semester. Um, and each of the re week's readings would explore either one or three or so um, theories that were clustered around these themes. So we would do an exploration of, of those pieces. I find that you know with theory, you really have to spend time um, reviewing it in person to make sure that students are really getting um, what they need out of it um, and talking it through so it really brings it more to life. Um, I think sometimes students feel a little bit intimidated by um, doing um, the exploration of those leadership pieces. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we did was really talk it out and I used a lot of the visuals from the book to help explain the dynamics of, of those interplays of the theories. The second half of the class, and sometimes I just switch it up and do it at the beginning, but typically the second part of the class we would do an activity. And the facilitator's guide uh, was essential and such uh, a treasured resource for me because these are incredibly well thought out activities that um, are very, um, integrated with with the book and each of the of the chapters of the facilitator's guide um, has a narrative associated with it so it's not just like read the book and then here's some activities there's a narrative that weaves in the themes there are very clearly defined learning objectives um, and then there are sometimes between one and three or more activities that really uh, switch up the different ways that you can do um, the learning so some of them uh, are you know and it tells you very clearly what the intended structure is so is it for what number of participants, um, about how much time should you allot? Mm. So from a facilitator standpoint in, in prepping a course, uh, certainly for me for the first time, it was incredibly useful to have that guidance. And so some of the activities I could tell would be great for like a half day training yeah. or would be great for a full two hour session. And some uh, were ideal for the amount of time that I had, which is usually between 30 minutes or an hour, hour 15. And some of them I was able to adapt for my use, even if they were intended to be a little bit longer, um, and so it was a it was a wonderful way to weave in um, a lot of the active component of what I wanted, and that's I think a theory course to have a lot of activity based and student engaged components is, in my experience, unusual, but it was essential to the learning that took place. Mm, great. Okay, uh, John, what sorts of assignments do you think are possible with the book? Well, I mean, I think 
it's sort of infinite depending on the context. And so I think, you know, in a curricular setting, you may have sort of a discipline specific, or if you take, for example, the leadership minor, we have sort of open sections that tend to be very interdisciplinary in terms of the student audience, but then we have dedicated sections. So we have a section for students who are in the honors program, a section for student uh, athletes, a section for students who are in living learning programs. And I think the audience dictates the type of activities you do. And I agree, um, it, Anna, you said really beautifully, like, when you're going to go real abstract, it ought to be coupled with something concrete, mm -hmm. and it ought to be coupled with something that drives home the personal connection, both to the theory and to the exploration of the theory itself. So part of what we've tried to do with the, the facilitator's guide is, is offer activities that run those, those gamuts. So a, a pragmatic example, um, Ben Barnes and... Uh, and um, uh, uh, Natasha Chapman wrote a, an amazing activity that is um, from um, implicit leadership theory. And so that chapter and that sort of activity is guided around using implicit bias tests that students mm -hmm. take up front that then is brought in as a resource so that there's some sort of hard evidence to engage then around what does this look like and then how does that translate into leadership context. But then at the very sort of opposite end of the spectrum, you have Valeria Cortez who does this amazing arts-based education approach to understanding social justice. And so how she sort of structures that is, is from her discipline and it's just brilliant and beautiful. So I think it lends itself to lots of different ways. I'd add to that one of the things that um, I think is helpful that isn't in the facilitator's guide, but the book itself is the narratives. Mm -hmm. So you read all of the super abstract ideas and then you have these counter narratives that drive home make accessible and personalize uh, you know, the reality of what it means to live and engage in leadership in the real world. Okay. All right, Anna, what sort of experiential options did the book invite? Well, the, it really, as we've described, there are so many different kinds of activities that love themselves for, for different formats, whether it's number of participants or length of time that you have, or um, you know, take the students through very different kinds of activities um, themselves, whether you're you know, around the room, up and about, collaborating in groups, doing things independently. So it really is incredibly flexible. One of the things that um, was really uh, resonated with uh, the students in my class was um, a wonderful activity um, by Amy Barnes, which was applying a critical social theory lens to strength scenarios. So one of the great things, um, you know, particularly with undergraduates, um, they had taken the strengths finder assessment in a previous class this semester before and loved it, you know, just were very excited about strengths. It was a, a great message, you know, they were living into the positive message of it, um, felt really good about it, felt like they had a clear direction on how to use their strengths and all this. And so when they came into my class, um, the, the point of this unit was to really look critically at strengths um, and examine power and privilege and how it lets some individuals, based on their identities, live into their strengths and versus how, you know, uh, you know, structures of oppression uh, don't let others to do that. And it was a perspective that some of them, I guess, maybe had, because of their identities, felt like this, mm. this subtle sense of unease that maybe they hadn't had any opportunity to explore, understand, and then this was a huge light bulb moment. Um, and then for others, it was complete blindside. They had no, they had no awareness of that. And so it was really powerful because it was something that they had lived into and were so excited about. And um, so to kind of turn it on its head, and you know, we went through this cycle of then them feeling kind of a little bit sad about you know sort of deconstructing something that they had been so excited about. But the beauty of the critical social theory 
process, because it's an active theory, which I absolutely love, is that then we go back to the reconstruction process and we say, but how, it's, don't throw it out. You know, it's not just this is good, this is bad. But how do we really rebuild that using our tools of reconstruction and all the all the things that we've learned from critical social theory and bring those lessons back together so that we can use strengths of others in a, in a cognizant way um, that makes us feel you know good about what we're doing but acknowledges all those systems of oppression and other issues that are there whether we acknowledge them or not so it was it was a wonderful way uh, then to start thinking about how do we disrupt problematic situations and structures using what we've learned and so it, each course had this sort of a cycle an ebb and flow um, mm. I, I sort of uh, joke that, you know, I destroy everything you love because <laughs> humor is very important. Um, when you're dealing with theory, I found, and John taught me that when I was his student. Um, but, you know, when students are doing a deconstructive process, it can feel like all we're doing is breaking everything down, you know. But what I love about this uh, approach is that um, with the reconstruction piece, you have such an opportunity to create real hope and real progress because you're cognizant now of everything that's really going on and the underlying you know components of what's happening um, societally in terms of social location and identity so what you realize is that before you didn't you know maybe weren't examining all those things but they were still there and operating on what's going on and now you have the tools to figure out how do I critically reflect on this how do I make steps and what's my agency in, in making things um, more progressive and, and better so the students um, loved it uh, it's it's an intense experience but they really now feel like the tools of deconstruction and reconstruction are like core life skills which is really cool that's I mean that's something that I think is interesting is that the transferability of that mode of making meaning into other contexts yes. is very high. I'm curious if I could ask a follow-up question, and I don't know, Miles, if you have thoughts on this too, but um, so one of the pieces of feedback we received when we were writing that I think was, was spot on was, is this too much? <laughs> and then, you know, the follow-up feedback, which I, I'm not sure where I sit with it, is students won't like this. It's, it's too hard. Teach folks the theories and then come back later at another time, maybe in graduate school, and then teach them. To, like, deconstruction and reconstruction is too hard for... So I'm just curious, like, you're in a classroom with students, and we haven't even talked about this yet, Anna. So I'm were students, like, get rid of this? This is too much? Hell no. My, look, my guess is is that, I, I don't know, but I, I have a suspicion. I think what's hard <clears throat> about the book is acknowledging things like stocks of knowledge, ideology, and hegemony, and, and social location. I don't actually think that the process, like saying that the idea of understanding a theory, taking it apart, and then trying, you know, not really taking it apart, analyzing it, like, you know, analysis is a is a mm -hmm. central part of right. the educational process and then the idea that you're instead of just taking something apart that you're actually trying to add value to you know to things that you pointed out not some sort of radical idea not some mm -hmm. idea that should only be you know only should be saved for people after they're 22 years of age right. uh, I think that it's more you know I, I think the book challenges you in different ways than than that but yeah I, I think that this is essential um, I think the earlier that young people can learn these skills, the more empowered they feel. And so my experience of doing this um, with undergraduates was that 
um, you know, you, you have to, it's all about also how you present yeah. it. Um, and I think you have to be cognizant of that. We were very intentional about creating not just a safe space, but a brave space and mm -hmm. having a very intentional conversation at the beginning of class about the fact that um, because a lot of this has to do with identity and a lot of this has to do with our place in structures that were, may or may not be of our you know, choosing and direction, that we would be examining a lot of things that would get feel very personal um, in the course, not that we're asking for people to share if they didn't want to, but it was just going to be there. Um, and everyone's perspective was gonna reflect you know, their social location. And so talking about the fact that not everyone in the room is coming into that with an equitable uh, level of risk. You know? yeah. So it's a brave space because some people in the room are having to be more brave in order to engage in the conversation than others. And so I think that that set a tone that was really important and critical. Um, and uh, the class dynamics, fortunately, were, um, were really good. But we did have students at very different points in their wokeness, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and their knowledge and complexity around these issues. And, but I think that it is important to, to keep that environment, an environment of respect and collaboration. And I think the students were very good about doing that. But as a facilitator, as an instructor, um, also really providing space for people to, to talk, ask questions, and share. Um, but the idea of being able to provide this, this, this theory that provides you know, the structure and then being able to do something, as John said, that is active, that is engaged, and feels uh, personal uh, or relatable at least, um, was a wonderful way to put these things into practice. I think if we had just talked about the, about the leadership uh, theories themselves and not done this other component, you know, I'm not sure that they would have carried much of it with them afterwards mm. unless they were directly engaging with the material, which in most cases, mm. you know, we've got marketing students, we've got sports medicine. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're not necessarily in that vein. But what we taught them was not, you have to remember the 14 tenets of this theory. Yeah. It was, this is a way of thinking. This is a way of engaging with anything you come across that it's like taking the, the, the veil off. You know, mm -hmm. you, once you start seeing that, you can't unsee it. And I knew I kind of was at a point of, you know, um, that I was really proud of when students started just randomly emailing me like, this thing happened and I saw this and I was like, that stocks of knowledge and we got to disrupt no activity. And I mean, they were just, um, they couldn't unsee from that perspective. And being able to provide uh, an important dual emphasis on the deconstruction as well as the reconstruction is important because there's a lot of emotion and resonance around the deconstruction that can feel very raw because you're yeah. taking apart things that look good, feel familiar. I mean, some of the students would come into class and say, oh, I really like that theory. And now you're going to tell me why it's bad. <laughs> and they were joking because mm -hmm. they knew our format by then. But they were excited and looking forward to it because they, could, they got used to saying, there are things here I don't see. And I need to see them. And I'm excited that I'm learning how to do that. And now they see that as a life skill that they use completely outside of leadership theory. And I think that can only help us create more complex critical thinkers, which I know I want more of in the world, so. Yeah. I'm, uh, maybe a conversation for another time is how do we deal with our own biases around what is developmental readiness and what is appropriate for exposure, right? So, you know, I mean, I think that's going to be a, a critical piece that someone, you know, picking up this book has to be willing to lean into the discomfort that you just described. And it creates a different type of academic classroom and a willingness to create those brave spaces and deal with messiness. And mm -hmm. 
it's not, you know, a five point quiz to tell you exactly what type of leader you are. And, right. you know, that's great for me and exciting for me. But um, part of what I think we have to do in leadership education is then break through and help others see the, you know, the reciprocal benefit of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, there's just nothing, there's nothing easy about the questions that this book is asking. You know, I mean, you have questions of identity you have questions of privilege you have questions of social justice and none of those are easy questions for people whether they are 18 years old or whether they're 40 years old and and but the other thing that's not easy about it is that this book is intentionally uncompromising in ideas about theoretical certainty you know Mm -hmm. there is no you know there is no uh you know no prescriptive thing Mm -hmm. that we're walking away from this book with and so that's hard too, you know, it's easier. The The reason why there's all these prescriptive heuristic based models is because those are, those are easier. And I guess comfortable. they're comfortable. And I guess what, I guess, you know, some of what we're saying here mm-hmm. is that, you know, maybe we need to step out of, uh, you know, step away from that, from that comfort and, and believe more in our students. What I, I what I witnessed was exactly that. Um, they came in expecting, you know, kind of a class like others that they've had, and they they realized that this was an experience and it was a learning process unlike what they had had before. And um, I think that while undergraduates or even graduate students might um, find it attractive to simplify and, and find these comfortable heuristics and models that are prescriptive, um, the level of empowerment that came out of being able to understand a process of thinking rather than specific yeah. steps to memorize um, was really transformational. And I would also say that as younger, you know, humans, um, they didn't have to unlearn as many things as um, you know, folks that may have had more life experience. And they're point. while they might not have as much experience in terms of their complexity, to give them a model so early on from which to develop that complexity, to me, that's a complete gift. So um, they were very receptive once they practiced it and saw that there were ways that they could apply this just to everyday um, happenings in their life. Um, And they just couldn't unsee that way um, going forward, which I thought was just very rewarding. Natasha Terman um, at a pre-con here at NASPA, um, who's one of the editors and such a brilliant scholar herself, had said, you know, it's, interesting that we focus so much on students because sometimes the learning that we have to do particularly around these critical perspectives is our learning that gets in the way and so when I hear you say that I'm a part of what I'm thinking is Natasha's absolutely right like we may be hesitant but students may be even more receptive because they haven't been indoctrinated in certain ways and they see the practical value and are open you know part of it is you know, when, when students come through my classes, sometimes they say, um, at the end, I'm leaving with more questions than answers, as if it's a bad thing. And I'm like, yes, That's we did our work. Win. Yes, yeah, Absolutely. win. But, you know, my students said the same thing. The structure of evaluation for faculty, are, you know, is not rewarded for that, right? So um, I really appreciate that. I hadn't thought of it like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that that's it. So, Thanks, everybody, for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. And thanks, Donna and John, for joining and providing this great look into the curricular uses of leadership theory, cultivating critical perspectives. 
And just as a note, uh, I did do some research while we were talking. Sizzler, still a thing. Oh, it's just yay, on, okay. No Sizzler. Just on the West Coast. West okay. Coast, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you can get more information about the student leadership programs, knowledge community on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SA lead on Twitter at NASPA SLPKC and on Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at miles, which is M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear about your program. So please shoot an email to NASPA leader podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, Sean and Anna. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks.